Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Whether you're a businessman, a statesman, a general, or a parent, you're strategizing on a daily basis. So how can you do it better? Well, my guest today will provide some insights. His name is Barry Nailbuff. He's a game theory expert and the author of the book, The Art of Strategy, A Game Theorist's Guide to Success in Business and Life. And on the show today, Barry and I discuss how game theory can help you make better strategic decisions in all sorts of situations. For example, we explore why threatening to punish your child's sibling for bad behavior might be a more effective strategy than threatening to punish the child himself. I know that sounds Machiavellian, but we'll explain the reasoning behind that. We'll discuss what Donald Trump can teach us about the promise and perils of injecting randomness into your strategy. We also talk about how you can employ game theory against yourself to lose weight or even quit smoking. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash game theory. Barry Nailbuff, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so you're the co-author of a book called The Art of Strategy. It's about strategic thinking, particularly game theory. It's a topic I've long been interested in. Um, but before we get into the specifics of game theory, what it is, let's talk about strategy broadly. Um, how do you and your co-author define strategic thinking in your book? I mean, what is strategy, really? Strategy is different from decision-making. And the reason is that there are other people's decisions that end up mattering. So when a lumberjack cuts down a tree or an engineer builds a bridge, that bridge isn't responding, isn't thinking. The tree isn't a strategic player. But when you make decisions in the real world, the success of your actions depends on how other people will respond. And so that interactive aspect of the decision making is what makes for strategy and game theory. Okay. And I mean, I can understand why business people or military strategists would need to understand strategic thinking or game theory, theory, but why is it important for even lay people? Like just people who are mom and dads, husbands, wives, and why is it important for them to understand strategy? I think everyone is interacting with decisions you make. Certainly kids, whether or not they want to uh, eat something or not eat something or stay up late uh, or how one divides up chores uh, in a household, uh, People are interacting with each other, and you don't make decisions in a vacuum. In physics, they say that for every action, there's a reaction, equal and opposite. But in game theory, that reaction can be changed and can be influenced. And since we don't act in isolation, uh, we better figure out how other people are going to respond to what we're doing. Right. But the thing is, uh, I think strategy has a, a bad, has a PR problem, right? Ever since ancient Greeks, you know, Odysseus was the wily one and his strategic thinking was often looked down upon as sort of, you know, unmanly or wily. And, you know, we think of strategy, we think of Machiavelli and being manipulative. Is that what strategy is or is that, can strategy turn into that or can stra- strategy actually be benevolent? Uh, well, another one of my books, co-authored with Adam Brandenburg, is called Co-Opetition. And it's about competing and cooperating at the same time. And so you need to understand strategy for how to compete more effectively, but you also need to understand it for how to cooperate more effectively. Okay. Well, so let's get into uh, you know, what makes up strategic thinking. You, you focus on game theory. And I think a lot of people might have heard of game theory if they've seen A Beautiful Mind uh, about John Nash. Um, but what is game theory and, and what's the history of its development? Sure. 
Well, game theory was started, created by a brilliant polymath at Princeton named John von Neumann. And, of course, uh, John Nash, uh, also at Princeton, uh, less than 100 years old, so it's a, relatively speaking, pretty new science. And initially it started out thinking about everything from how one would hide and uh, find submarines in, in warfare to now anything from how to raise kids to bid in auctions to find smart compensation contracts uh, for executives. I thought it might be worth playing a little game with you. Sure. That uh, could illustrate how to do this, uh, what what's going on. But um, it depends, actually, to the extent you've read the book. Correct. Uh, then I can't really do it. Oh, uh, uh, no. Nuts. It's, it's been uh, – it'd be, it'd be ruined as a result. So <laughs> – <laughs> well, maybe we can uh, link to something, that, uh, an online game that people can play sure. online if they haven't done it. Well, I mean, okay, so it started off primarily math-driven, but as I read your book, it seems like game theory has developed in something more interdisciplinarian. Is that correct? Well, since uh, political science, sociology, law, all of that uh, requires thinking about interactions, uh, it does actually cross many disciplines. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it seems like a lot of behavioral science is influencing it, psychology as well, cognitive science. Well, uh, remember, if you think that uh, economics is supposed to be a social science uh, as opposed to asocial, we're supposed to understand how other people interact with us. And in that sense, you have to take them as they are, not as you wish they would be. And so in that sense, uh, it's certainly uh, – we don't have a behavioral game theory for the simple reason that that would be redundant, that – uh, how other people behave is intrinsic and central to any discussion of game theory. Okay. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into to some games I'm sure people might are familiar with, but let's start getting to the nitty-gritty here. Um, so in the, the f you start off saying in, in the book that the first step when you find yourself in a strategic game so let's talk, what is, what, how do you know you're in a strategic game? Like, is it just be, whenever there's someone else or other people in a decision-making process? Is that a strategic game? If you're acting with other people and they can react to what you're doing or their actions influence your success, then you're pretty much in a game. So to give you a couple recent public policy examples, much of the debate about the ACA or Obamacare actually is really a game theory discussion. So uh, whether or not you require people to buy health care, well, uh, if you don't require healthy people to buy health care, then the only people who will end up buying it are those who uh, have pre-existing conditions, who aren't healthy. That means the premiums are going to have to be very high. That means that only the even sicker people will end up buying health care, which means the premiums will have to be higher still. And the end result is you'll get what's called a death spiral, and nobody will end up being able to afford health care. And so the idea of understanding the interaction between who will buy and what the effective premium is would be a classic example of what uh, George Akerlof won a Nobel Prize for, something called the market for lemons. And so, I mean, game theory, games can get very complex or very simple. I mean, a, a simpler one would be just negotiating what time your child's going to go to bed. Right, that's a very simple one, but the Obamacare uh, instance—that's very complex. There's a lot of different people involved, a lot of different factors. Um, so you you say that in the whenever you, whenever you find yourself in a strategic, strategic game, when there's decisions being made that involve other people, uh, the first thing to do is figure out what kind of game it is, and it's either simultaneous or sequential. Um, what are the differences between the two, and how will your strategy change based on what kind of uh, game it is? Uh, so let me just go back for a second. I don't think the game with your kid about bedtime is so simple because remember, okay. <laughs> it's not just one night. This is a classic repeated game and you might decide that today it's not worth fighting it, but you need to be tough to have a reputation because otherwise in the future uh, you won't have any credibility. And so uh, most games uh, are neither simply sequential or simultaneous. There are mixtures of both. They're not single shot. They go on again and again, so they repeat it. In a sequential move game, is much like checkers. I make a move, you make a move, I make a move, and we alternate making moves. So when I'm making a move, I have to think about how you're going to respond. 
when your response is taken into account, it's thinking about what I'm going to do in response to your response, and so on. In contrast, a simultaneous move game doesn't really require us to move at the exact same moment, but it means I have to make a move without knowing exactly what it is you've done at the time I'm making my decision. So a very uh, simple example of that uh, would be I am placing a bid in an auction and I'm bidding without knowing what your bid is. Another example could be quite uh, soon I'm voting. And when I place my vote, I don't know what the other people have done in their voting booth. And so when I'm thinking about do I want to support the candidate who I really like or make a protest vote, uh, I don't really know what other people's decisions have been made at the same time. So it sounds like with simultaneous games, there's a lot more uncertainty. With sequential games, there's a bit more certainty than simultaneous. Exactly. Note, again, just in voting, it's not that we're literally all voting at the exact same moment. But when I'm voting, since I don't know what you've done, it's as if we're moving at the same time. And you're absolutely right that in sequential move games, it's much, much easier to solve because I know everything in terms of what you've done. Right. So with sequential, with sequential games, you can, um, you can look forward and start reasoning backwards, I think is what you say in the book. Exactly. So the nice thing about sequential move games is we know how to solve them. And essentially, you can play out every possible scenario, and you can figure out what is the best way of playing the game. And so uh, that's really easy to do in, the, in tic-tac-toe, which is why nobody plays tic-tac-toe once they're above seven, because you can figure out going to the center means we're always going to get a tie. In contrast, uh, for a while, it was thought that uh, chess uh, was too hard to solve or go was too hard to solve. And so even though in theory there was an optimal way of playing it, a way of guaranteeing either a victory, a tie, or a tie, uh, since nobody knew what that was, we could still enjoy playing the game. Uh, pretty soon I'd say that that's not going to be the case. Right, because computers will allow, allow them to map out all the sequences, possible sequences. Right, I think the top six or seven best chess players in the world are all now computer programs. That's crazy. Um, so, I mean, so I think we can all intuitively do this, you know, sequential, um, you know, forecasting, right? You know, looking forward, reason backward on when things are pretty simple, but I mean, some of these sequential games can get really complex. I mean, chess is a perfect example. There are millions and, you know, millions upon millions of different uh, sequences. So how do you, as a game, you know, as a game theorist track those sequences and then figure out which sequence will probably be the one that will play out in the real world? Well, uh, when we didn't have computers, you use heuristics. You say, I think that owning certain parts of the board, certain positions are stronger than others. Certain pieces are worth more than other pieces in terms of power. And so you look for simple rules that are usually right. Maybe they're not always right. Uh, in other cases, you can do simulation. Uh, in other cases, you base this on experience. Uh, depends a little bit on how important the game is and uh, how often it's going to be played in terms of how much you want to go and figure out how to solve it. Uh, a classic example, though, uh, of sometimes uh, failure to understand the right strategy occurs in sports, where uh, when teams are thinking about when it is to go for a two-point play rather than a one-point play in a, uh, after a touchdown, uh, sometimes they fail to look forward and reason backward. So if you're down by two touchdowns with not that much time left to go, uh, and you score one touchdown and uh, make the extra point, uh, there are cases where the coach has then gone for the uh, two-point play uh, on the second touchdown with just a, a few moments left to go so as to win rather than tie the game. And it turns out that that's a, a fine strategy. You might argue uh, it's worth taking that risk. But if you thought that's what you'd want to do, then you should have gone for the two-point play on the penultimate touchdown. The reason being that you have to make both a one-point and a two-point play. It doesn't really matter which order you make them in. But if you miss the two-point play on the first shot, then you have another chance to make a two-point play on the second one and still get a tie. 
Ah, okay. That makes sense. I didn't think about it that way. I've had those moments where my coach decided to go for it later on and we ended up losing. Um, so it sounds like sequential games. Are there any examples of like real life examples of like, you know, we're talking, I'm talking about, you know, parent to child or business to business where there's sequential games. It seems like the examples we've been talking about are very, you know, they're, they're, they're games, like literal games, tic-tac-toe, football, chess, um, any examples where there's less structure, but there's still a sequential game involved? Well, I'd say if you think about uh, appointing a Supreme Court nominee, the president goes and suggests a candidate. The Senate then, in theory, advises and confirms. And so, uh, sure, there are discussions and movements ahead of time, but essentially the Senate doesn't uh, get to uh, well, they, they can try and change this and preempt it by saying, unless you pick X, uh, we're not going to accept anyone. Uh, but essentially, the president moves first, and then the Senate uh, moves second. In other cases, uh, Congress and the Senate will pass a bill, and then the president decides whether to sign it or to veto it. And if vetoed, the uh, Congress decides whether not to override the veto. So... Uh, it's still obviously a simplification, but uh, various laws have created a structure which puts some sequentiality into the moose. Right. But there's still some simultaneous things going on. As you said earlier, it, games are usually a mixture of the both, simultaneous and sequential. Absolutely. But I'd say in this case, there's still a, a predominant aspect of sequentiality. Okay. So let's move into specific games that I think people might have um, have heard or have experienced with um, that kind of highlight some insights into game theory. One of them I think a lot of people have heard of is the prisoner's dilemma. Mm -hmm. um, for those who aren't familiar with it, could you, can you briefly explain what the prisoner's dilemma is and, and then what insights about game theory does it provide us? Uh, I think uh, there's a sense in which people think uh, – the prisoner's dilemma and game theory are synonymous, which is uh, unfortunate because game theory is a lot more than the prisoner's dilemma. But to the extent that anybody has watched a crime thriller uh, or the wonderful English TV show Golden Balls, uh, what you have is a situation where both individuals, each individual, has an incentive to cheat or to confess no matter what the other side does. So here you're interviewing two prisoners in separate rooms. Uh, a crime has been committed. If neither prisoner confesses, then they both get off. But if one confesses, while, or actually don't quite get off, they get a light sentence. If one confesses while the other keeps mum, the one who confesses uh, gets off and the other one gets a very tough sentence. While if they both confess, then they each get a medium sentence. And so the idea is that if one side keeps mum, then I can get off by confessing. And if the other side confesses, then I really had better confess, because otherwise I'm going to get a really severe sentence. And so uh, since no matter what I think the other side is going to do, uh, I have an incentive to confess. But of course, when both confess, they're both worse, worse off than if neither one does. And this is this paradox, because in some sense, when we each act in our individual interest, the end result is bad for us in a collective sense. Right. And any instances where, I mean, the prisoners don't off, you know, obviously happens whenever you're doing the separating the prisoners and trying to negotiate uh, confessions, but any other like real life examples where you see prisoners dilemmas um, act play out? Well, I, I think the, there's the tragedy of com of the commons, which is a multi-person uh, version of this. And so if you think about global warming or air pollution, uh, it's uh, in my interest uh, to not change my lifestyle, to continue driving cars or flying planes or to uh, provide in, uh, support industry. Uh, and each of us does this, uh, and the end result is that we end up with global warming and we're all worse off. And so we need to somehow collectively agree to work and and cut back carbon emissions as opposed to do this on an individual basis. Now, the advantage that we have here is that we can actually talk to each other and monitor what the other side is doing. So if we had to make these decisions in isolation and not do treaties, then we'd find ourselves in the multi-person version of prisoner's dilemma, and the result would be disastrous. 
And so the good thing is uh, we don't let prisoners talk to each other and make a pact, but we do let countries do that. And that's why we need to actually do it via treaties and alliances as opposed to counting on people acting in their own self-interest. Right. So it sounds like uh, if you find yourself in a prisoner's dilemma situation is to open up communication. That's how you avoid those scenarios. Exactly. And of course, sometimes the goal is to put other people in a prisoner's dilemma and and prevent them from being able to communicate. So uh, you've hit on a key point, which is sometimes the best way to play a game is to change the game. That if the game isn't working out for you, uh, don't accept it the way it is. And how would you, I mean, so what's an example of changing the game so um, you can make things better? You can uh, add more players to the game. You can say, okay, uh, if in fact I discover that uh, you snitched or you discover I snitched and we go to prison, people will beat up snitches. And so it may look like it's a good idea to do the confession, but actually the game isn't over yet. And that uh, we, in fact, want to make sure that there are other uh, players uh, who will end up punishing us for doing the strategy that, at the short run, seems to be in our interest. Okay, so you ex- extend the game, make it longer. Yeah, I mean, I guess that you you bring that that come, ties into you bring in the uh, the tit for tat approach that one game theorist developed back you know a couple decades ago. When in these sort of prisoners dilemma type games, where there was multiple prisoner dilemma games, so like you know you would confess one time and the other guy wouldn't confess, and then the other guy would know what you did, and then he would re- retaliate for you know sticking it to you. Um, and at the time, they, this thought, they thought that this tit-for-tat approach was a good way to um, solve the pr- prisoner's dilemma. But you argue in the book that it's actually not that great of, a, of an approach. So it's probably not the case that we're going to play tit-for-tat with prisoners because they would have to be serious recidivists to be doing this <laughs> right. uh, tens or hundreds of times uh, in a row. Uh, or uh, It's more likely – the prison dilemma – exists when companies are trying to find ways to circumvent competition and to come up with, say, implicit, uh, sometimes even explicit, uh, collusion. So firms, uh, let's take airlines as a case, might want to keep prices high. And uh, so the question is, uh, I want to go and do a little bit of a price cut and steal some market share from you. And uh, it may not be in my rival's interest who has a larger fraction of that particular route or has more to lose uh, by coming down and matching me. But if I understand that the person is going to do that, they will uh, do a tit-for-tat strategy. And if I come down, they're going to come down. Then I don't get the gain from doing any type of price cut. Uh, They're going to punish me. And as a result, I will learn that this type of cheating uh, and cheating, by the way, here is in some sense cheating on the collusion. So it's cheating on the on the cheating, if you want. Uh, it doesn't actually pay off. Now, the problem uh, with simple mechanical responses to when you think somebody else is cheating is that every now and then you're going to make a mistake, and you're going to think somebody cheated even when they didn't, and so you're going to punish them. And then what's going to happen is they're going to punish you for punishing them, and then you're going to punish them for punishing you for punishing them. And you're going to get yourself into one of these spirals, uh, perhaps uh, a little bit like what we see in the Mideast, uh, where it's hard to even figure out who started it. But now we're just in this endless cycle of retaliation. And uh, how do we ever get out of it? Right. It, yeah, this, this is interesting with the airline thing. I mean, there's laws in place where uh, companies can't explicitly collude. Right, they can't get together in a sort of a cabal and say, "All right, here's the price we're going to set the, the the tickets at, so all of us can benefit from it." So, because they can't do that, they have to do these sort of implicit collusion. Okay, well, if you're going to raise the price, I'll raise the price, and it kind of evens out. Well, it's a little bit of I see my rival raise price. Now I can do two things: I can take advantage of that and uh, get some extra share. Or I can match the price. And while I don't want to match the price, I want to give my rival an incentive to have taken this action and encourage them to keep the price high. And so even without talking to the other side, uh, I can 
figure out that this might be in my long-run interests. Uh, people have been talking about the effects of greater concentration in industry uh, and that leading to higher profits and uh, perhaps higher prices. Um, but what often they've missed is something ca uh, called common ownership. And two of my colleagues here, Florian Ederer and Fiona Scott Morton, have been working on this. And one of the things they've discovered uh, is that most companies, uh, most competitors have the same owner. So Vanguard or Fidelity uh, own huge fractions of all the different airlines or all the different pharmaceutical companies. And when you own A and its rival, B, you know, you say, well, wait a second, uh, guys, uh, I don't think this is such a good idea for you to go and keep on cutting prices to try and steal share from each other or adding capacity. You know, just uh, lay off a little bit here. And so uh, essentially, now we have to worry not just about firms colluding with each other, but the person who owns both of the firms, encouraging them to not really compete vigorously with each other. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. 
there is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So another type of game that you mentioned in the book that's sort of a bit different from uh, The Prisoner's Dilemma is what you call a confidence game. Um, what is a confidence game and how does it differ from a, a prisoner's dilemma? No, I think uh, Maria Konnikova has written a great book about this. And uh, she talks about how it is that con artists uh, end up fooling people. And this is a, a, some wonderful applications of game theory. Um, in particular, if you're ever wondering why it is that spam uh, that's trying to uh, get uh, phishing exercises, trying to go and uh, get you to send lots of money to Nigeria or someplace else, uh, are uh, full of spelling errors. You can say, well, okay, guys, you know, come on, run through a spell checker. I mean, uh, how bad, uh, how, how stupid you have to be? Uh, and the answer is, they don't want to waste their time with people who aren't gullible. And so they do things that are particularly bad uh, because if, in fact, you can't spot the super obvious nature of the spam, then uh, that's saying, okay, I've got a real stupid fish here uh, and I've hooked a great one and I can go after this person. Whereas uh, if they find people who are particularly sophisticated, uh, later on, uh, those folks will catch on and uh, they will have wasted a lot of their time. So it's an interesting point that uh, they make the letters intentionally uh, simplistic, uh, unrealistic, uh, riddled with spelling errors uh, because they're trying to find the stupidest fish in the sea. All right. So it's sort of like they're signaling. They're trying to they're putting out a signal to uh, find out the signals of their their potential victims. Exactly. It's the last latter point that's the key is that they're looking for their victims to signal that they're not paying attention, that they're gullible. And if they don't have spelling errors, then the other side can't really signal their gullibility. All right. So these spam guys from Nigeria, they're pretty smart. They're, they're, they're smart to act stupid. Right, right. Um, so let's talk about, I think, something that people might have heard before because of popular culture. I think A Beautiful Mind might have held. But like this idea of the Nash equilibrium. Mm-hmm. I've heard it before over and over, and I never quite understood until I read your book. Um, but for those who aren't familiar, what is a Nash equilibrium uh, in game theory? Does it happen in sequential games, or does it happen in simultaneous games, or both? The concept of a Nash equilibrium was developed to help us understand what will happen, uh, or a resting point, in a simultaneous move game. And so the challenge is, uh, what do we do in a world where I think that you think that I think, uh, and ad infinitum, uh, will happen? I don't get to see what you're doing, you don't get to see what I'm doing, and so what move is it that I want to make in a world where uh, I have to anticipate what you're doing when you're anticipating what I'm going to do. And that seems like it's an infinitely recursive logic. And it's not clear how you ever cut through that knot. And so the brilliant insight of John Nash is, well, are there a set of strategies or moves such that if I'm doing A and you're doing B, and I think you're doing B, and I think you think I'm doing A, then I still actually want to do A. So that is, if you've correctly anticipated what I'm going to do, and I've correctly anticipated what you're going to do, neither of us wants to change what we're doing. And uh, that is an attractive candidate for how a game will be played when we can't actually see what the other person has done. 
So, so it sounds like the goal is to get to a Nash equilibrium when you're strategizing. No. No. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> right. It, it, it is not a goal. Uh, in particular, in, in the prisoner dilemma, the, the Nash equilibrium is that both confess. So that's not a good outcome. Uh, if we want to predict how a game might be played, then a Nash equilibrium is a good starting place for what players might end up doing. But it is not necessarily desirable uh, as an outcome. Okay. So as you, I, I guess, I, as you work through the Nash equilibrium or trying to you know, figure out what the Nash equilibrium, equilibrium is, you're going to find, I guess, what you call dominant strategies uh, in the mix. And then is that the thing you should take is the dominant strategy for you? Well, if there's a dominant strategy, then life is easy because it says whatever I think the other person is doing doesn't matter. It's always the case that I want to do A. A is better than any other strategy. And so I don't have to consider what the other person is doing. And so that allows me a real cheat out of uh, this Gordian knot. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that there aren't that many games where there really is a dominant strategy. And so uh, we have to, more often than not, refer back to a Nash equilibrium to get a better sense of how we should play the game. Okay. Well, it, so this idea when you're, when you're strategizing, doing a simultaneous strategy, um, you're, like you said, you're doing this sort of thing, this recursive thing in your head. I'm thinking A, and I think my opponent or competitor is thinking that I'm thinking A, and if he's thinking that, then I'm going to do this. Um, it sounds like it, it would be good to inject randomness, right? So you can throw people off. Well, it, again, it depends. Is our is my goal to coordinate with you or to get an advantage over you? So uh, here's I'll give you two versions of a simultaneous move game. Uh, here's one. You and I both have to pick a number. And if we pick the same number, then we both get that amount of money paid for by a third party. And that number, let's say, has to be between 1 and 10. It's an integer. So if we both pick four, we both get four. If we both pick five, we both get five. Uh, if you pick four and I pick six, we both get zero. So yeah, we both pick ten if we're if we're cooperating. Okay. Well, now you now you've ruined it because you 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 gave me a sense of what it is you're going to do before we we played the uh, game. Oh, okay, darn it. Uh, but that's okay. Right. So uh, one of the things this game illustrates is that uh, there's a lot of Nash equilibrium. If I'm going to pick six. What is it that you're going to do in this game? What do you What do you want to do? Well, I'd pick six too if I knew exactly. that. Exactly. Now you might say, okay, well, six six is not such a uh, a great outcome. We could both pick ten. I got it. But uh, you have to be sufficiently confident that I'm going to pick ten in order for you to pick ten. And in fact, uh, this is a game where there's. Uh, multiple Nash equilibria, you might decide, well, it's not that hard to pick between them because isn't it obvious that everyone should pick 10? Okay, but actually this game helps explain a lot of why we see some countries developing faster than others. So in much of the world, there's corruption and corruption creates problems with police, with doing business. And you can say, you know, I think a world in which there's no corruption is a, a better world. But if I think you're going to be corrupt, then I have to be corrupt. And if you think I'm going to be corrupt, then you're going to be corrupt. And so in, a, in such a, a case, we end up both picking two, if you'd like, and we each get two rather than 10 and 10. And so if you're scared that I'm going to pick two, uh, even if you want to pick 10 and you know I want to pick 10, if I'm scared that you think I'm scared, then you might pick two because you think I'm going to pick two. And we both know there's a better answer, but neither of us uh, has the confidence that we're willing to go there. Okay. Well, and so that's one example of a game. What's another example? Um, you said there was another example of a game. Well, so the other version is if we both uh, pick different numbers, now uh, we get a reward. Well, now it's a little harder. Uh, what number do you pick between 1 and 10? 
So uh, how how do how does it determine who gets the gets the money? Is it the person who picks the highest? Well, we both get, there's a third party who's going to pay us money unless we get the hit a tie. Okay. Yeah. And now you can think about this a little bit as uh, you know commuting. Uh, we both uh, if we both leave at the same time, there's traffic. Uh, and is it do I leave early and you leave late? Do you leave late and I leave early? Uh, how is it that we end up? uncoordinating our behavior and we both agree that we want to be uncoordinated but it's not quite so clear how it is we go about doing that interesting um so i mean i guess you would have to there would have to again be communication if you want to over well if there was communication then it'd be easy just like when you said hey i'm gonna pick 10 right uh but here uh you know in other cases uh if you don't allow communication, uh, then the idea of coordination or discoordination without communication is uh, what becomes the challenge. So you might say, look, the best thing to do in that case is just pick any number at random between 1 and 10. And that actually would be a, a Nash equilibrium in this particular game. Interesting. And I, I guess the, um, you talk highlight other examples where randomness would be the best approach. Uh, you talk about uh, in soccer in the the penalty kick situation, where uh, you know you, the kicker can either kick right or left, and the goalkeeper has to decide whether he's going to go right because he doesn't have enough time to see where the ball is going. He has to like make that decision as soon as the guy kicks the ball. Um, so I, you are, I guess in the book, you say that it, it's in the interest of both the kicker and the goalkeeper just to randomize which way they're going to go. Yeah. Well, if in fact, either side could predict what the other side is going to do, then they'd have a big strategic advantage. If I know that you're always going to kick to the right side, then I'm going to want to jump to the right side to try and prevent the shot. And of course, if you know that I'm jumping to the right side, then you're going to want to kick to the left. So each side is trying to uh, get a sense of what the other one is doing. And this is this notion of being unpredictable. Now, what I find interesting in the uh, current presidential election is that that discussion of whether or not you always want to people, keep people guessing uh, is a strategy that Donald Trump talks about a lot. Uh, and sometimes it's the right strategy and sometimes not. So uh, if it's the case that I'm thinking about doing a surprise military attack, yeah, that I don't want people to know which day I'm going, where am I going to land at Dunkirk? Uh, am I going to land in Normandy? Uh, I don't want the enemy to uh, have a heads up in terms of where my troops are landing. On the other hand, uh, if it's something like, what will my response be if Russia attacks a NATO country or if China attacks Taiwan? I want the other side to know without any randomness uh, that NATO will respond. Uh, and we don't want people to be guessing in that case. We want to turn this into a sequential move game where they can imagine and know with great certainty rather than have to guess uh, what the response is. Because if they think NATO is going to respond or U.S. will respond to attack of Taiwan, then they won't go and initiate the conflict. All right, so you have to strategize about your strategy. Yeah. It's uh, an English expression, different horses for different courses. And that it's not the case that playing a random strategy is always a good idea. Sometimes you want to keep the other side guessing what you're going to do. And other times, exactly the reverse. You want to make sure they don't guess, that they know and can anticipate with precision uh, how you respond to any action. Right. And another example you gave that was interesting about randomness being effective uh, is with parking tickets, right? Um, so you just kind of, you randomly enforce, you know, who gets a parking ticket. And then that kind of keeps people on the lookout. Like, I better not do that because there's a chance that I could get a ticket. But if people knew in advance, like, okay, if they broke, if they were parking where they, when they shouldn't be parking, they knew they'd get a ticket, then they, or they, they knew there's times when they wouldn't get a ticket, they would just break the law all the time. Well, here's the thing. If we said we're only, if think about enforcing parking tickets a lot like the IRS enforcing tax returns. And if we said we're only going to audit people this year whose name begins with D, then 25 out of the 26 letters would say, okay, this is not the this is the year I can get away with cheating. 
And so uh, instead, you want to say, look, we don't have the resources to audit every uh, parked car or every tax exam. But what we're going to do is keep you guessing as to which ones we're going to look at. And if we find that you have made a mistake, then we're not just going to ask you to pay the cost of the parking meter, the 50 cents that you would have put in. We're actually going to stick you with a $25 fine. And if we find that you cheated on your tax returns, we're not just going to ask you for the amount of money that you should have paid. We're going to impose severe penalties on you. And so we reduce the probability of getting caught, but we increase the penalties and we keep people guessing by picking a random audit or random enforcement strategy. So, I mean, how do you determine uh, when a random strategy is best or when it's not best? I mean, how do you sit down and think? You look at this, you lay it, look at the situation, you have to decide, okay, should I inject some randomness here or maybe I should go make it a sequential game? How do you make that decision? Well, uh, it is actually in the case of taxes a, a little bit of a sequential game. Uh, the issue is in, in terms of randomness, do I care if the other side knows what I'm doing? Okay. So uh, if I'm playing to shoot to the right is the, uh, and I announce that ahead of time, would that be a good or a bad thing? And in the case of soccer, it would be a bad thing. If I said it ahead of time who it is that I was going to audit, would that be a good or a bad thing? And the answer is it's a bad thing because then I would be auditing exactly the wrong people. And so if I move in a way that I don't want other people to anticipate what it is that I'm doing, uh, to know what I'm doing, that's typically the case where a random strategy is a good idea. Okay. That makes sense. All right, so we've been talking about uh, game theory whenever other people are involved. But you have this interesting section in your book about using game theory against yourself uh, for self-improvement, personal improvement. So, so how can we play, apply game theory towards ourself when there's just one of us? Well, the thing is, there isn't just one of us. So the game we're playing is against this person who we might call our future self. And we have all sorts of aspirations for that future person. That person's going to exercise more, stop, uh, eat less, uh, not smoke, uh, be nicer. Uh, and while we would like this other person to do all those things, when we become that person in the future, we may decide, you know, I'm going to have another cookie. Uh, no, I'm a little tired today. No, no room to exercise. I can delay my quitting smoking for another week. And so what we want to do is create a game where we change the payoffs uh, for this future person uh, while today we have some ability to do that. And uh, that's anything. There's a, uh, there's a gentleman who I think put signs up all over town which said, if you find me eating any pies or desserts, uh, you can collect $1,000. Uh, and so the idea is that uh, now he's turned all of his neighbors uh, into enforcers for him. And while he might like to have that pie, uh, now he knows that it'll cost him $1,000 and, and that's not worth it. And so two colleagues of mine here at Yale, uh, Dean Carlin and Ian Ayers, uh, started a website called stick, stickk.com. That's also run by one of my former students, Jordan Goldberg. Uh, and uh, in this website, uh, it allows you to make commitments against yourself or contracts against yourself where you say, if I do X, then I will have to pay something to other people uh, as a consequence. And therefore, I'm not going to want to go ahead uh, and do it. Right. I've used stick in, in, in the past for myself uh, when I had writing deadlines and I, I needed to get it done. What I think is interesting about Stick is that you can set it up to where you can have the money go to what they call an anti-charity. So exactly. for an organization, because I mean, you could say, okay, donate the money to the American Heart Association. Like you won't feel that bad if, you know, you're fine. I was going to do it anyway. So that's not, so I have to give it to the John Birch Society. Right, exactly. This is some organization you, you absolutely despise. Detest. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's game theory in action. That, that, that was a result of game theory, that website. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, you can either give a small amount of money to a charity you despise or a large amount of money, much more than you would have liked, uh, to somebody 
who you feel neutral about or even like. So, yeah, I may like the American Cancer Society, but not enough to give them $100,000. Right. And so you may say giving $1,000 to the John Birch Society and 100000 to American Cancer Society, so they were both equally painful to me, if you'd like. Right. That's interesting. So yeah, I've 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 used it before, and I think we've talked about it before on the podcast before. And if you, yeah, if any of you work? have have uh, have had trouble with the goal, it is extremely effective. Um, I, I've I've had uh, home runs with. It. I've never had a problem um, having to pay up my money because I always so get, I, get the thing done. In my own life, I uh, before stick existed, I uh, was teaching a large class, and I showed up the first day with a scale, and I told my students. That if I didn't lose 15 pounds during the semester, I would teach my last class in a speedo. <laughs> uh, and I uh, offered my students the same ability if they wanted to weigh themselves, and uh, they would have to come to the last class uh, in a speedo. Uh, and I think about 15 took me up on this. And when my dean heard about it, he was none too pleased. He said, You know, Barry, you don't understand being a professor here at Yale. It's just not appropriate. It's just not done. You, I, I would be very upset uh, if you taught your last class in a Speedo. And my response was, yeah, me too. And that's why it's not going to happen. Uh, and, of course, I lost the weight. Uh, so that, uh, the idea of committing yourself to do something you really wouldn't like. And so I worked with ABC Primetime and did a TV show where – we took photographs of people wearing Speedos uh, before they lost weight. And these were people who really needed to lose weight. And these photographs of them in a Speedo were none too attractive. And the deal was if they didn't lose 15 pounds over the next six weeks, uh, those photographs would be posted online, on TV. And uh, as one woman said, you know, I know that being obese will lead to heart attacks, diabetes, stroke, and death. But that hasn't been enough to get me to lose weight. Uh, having my ex-boyfriend see me hanging out of a bikini, that's the motivation I need. And let's be clear, we didn't trick people into doing this. They voluntarily signed up and they were happy to do it because they knew that doing this would actually provide them the deadline and the incentive they needed to get started and to lose weight. But you talk about in the book, though, um, it, it lost of it lost its effectiveness that game because uh, someone didn't lose the weight, and there was a lawsuit involved. And she's like, I, I, "You can't let that image be shown," and they did. Uh, not quite. Okay. Uh, they one person uh, didn't lose the weight. Uh, she actually went down several dress sizes, and I think it gained some muscle because she was really working out, and so really looked better. Uh, and the wimps uh, at ABC. Uh, decided that they didn't want to show the photographs uh, because they were afraid of a lawsuit. Uh, and so as a result, uh, now when they tried to redo the series, uh, people would say, well, you know, okay, if I don't lose the weight, all I have to do is threaten a lawsuit uh, and uh, I'll get off the hook. And so it's just not, the threat no longer really exists. Right. So what makes that work is the threat. That's part. That's one uh, one aspect of strategizing is using threats. Well, it's a or a promise in this particular case. I mean, sure. it's a sense of we we reach this agreement, and if you lose the weight, we don't show it, and if you do lose the weight, we will show it. And while if you're going to do this only once, it's nice to let somebody off the hook because it doesn't really matter. If you ever thought about doing it again, then once you let them off the hook, you have no credibility in this. Well, that that leads me to my, I think, a, a nice segue to my next question about using game theory um, as a parent with your children uh, to influence good behavior. Um, because as you said, you can, there's that tendency if you, you're talking to your child about something and you let them off the hook once, they might get in their head, well, you know, if they did it, mom and dad did it this one time, well, maybe if I do the same thing again, they'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a great book on this called Parentonomics, Parentonomics by Joshua Gans, which applies game theory to child rearing. And uh, you might decide the following is a uh, evil, uh, sinister version of uh, parenting. But let let's say that uh, you've got two kids, uh, and you know, as a parent, you really believe that you can't 
uh, hit a kid or corporal punishment, that's, that just doesn't go anymore. Uh, and the kid knows it. And so is willing to take advantage of you. Uh, well, so the parent says to the older kid, look, if you misbehave, uh, I'm going to punish your sibling. And, uh, and the punishment might be whether it be going to bed early or you can't go see a movie or something. Uh, well, I'll tell you, one sibling has no compulsion uh, against, punish, uh, against hitting or doing things to annoy the other sibling, much more so than any parent can do. And so if you want to make a credible threat uh, to one kid uh, that if they really misbehave, uh, there's going to be a serious consequence to it, uh, the idea of punishing the other one in response uh, might be a much more effective threat. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I'm going to... I might try that on my five and three-year-old. We'll see. Yeah, they, they, it's wildly unfair, and that's actually part of the whole point, uh, is that it's unfair. All right. Well, any other um, ways that parents can use game theory to you know, influence good behavior, like get your kid to read more or say please or thank you? I mean, just anything. Uh, well, the one that uh, you – I don't know how much game theory you'll think of this is uh, my uh, strategy with uh, our kids uh, was – to give them an opportunity to have a list of three foods that they didn't have to eat. And they could change that list after any meal, but not before a meal. And so uh, this uh, led them to uh, think about strategies in the sense of, well, dad doesn't like Brussels sprouts. So even if I don't like Brussels sprouts, I probably don't have to put it on the list because it's not going to be served very often. And then it's uh, how intensely do I dislike this? Uh, how often is something going to be served? Uh, and so they have control in the sense that if they really don't like something, they can put it on a list, uh, but they have to choose uh, which items. They can't have an infinite list. And that seemed to eliminate most fights that we had over food. Okay, that's interesting too. I'm going to try that one out too um, on my kiddos. Well, Barry, this has been a really interesting conversation. Where can people learn more about your book and your work? Uh, if they go to barrynailbuff.com, there's a whole list of books that uh, I've co-authored on everything from innovation to uh, competing and cooperating to uh, problem solving to business strategy to uh, startups. Uh, this, uh, my most recent book is a done in graphic form, uh, telling the startup of honesty. And then I've just done a free, uh, emphasize the word free, online course on negotiation, which takes game theory and applies it to how you can become a better negotiator. And that's at Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A dot org. And if you want the whole link, it's Coursera.org slash learn slash negotiation. Perfect. Well, Barry Nelbuff, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Barry Nelbuff. He's the author of the book, The Art of Strategy. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out his website, BarryNailbuff.com for more information about his work. And check out the show notes at AOM.is slash game theory for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or any audio production needs, check them out at creativeaudiolab.com. And we appreciate your reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us out a lot. Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.